All right, welcome to another episode of Backlash Podcast. It's time to bow down. The uh, podcast queen's back. We got uh, Carrie Hoppy making a uh, <laughs> appearance, which is unbel- unbelievable. Seeing it's been I don't know how long. How long has it been, anyways, Carrie? It probably since last fall, sometime. I'm guessing. Brad, I thought you had her hidden away somewhere in some dungeon. You wouldn't ever let her come out. So I'm glad that she finally gets an opportunity to uh, to get back on. I know the fan club is going to be super fired up that you're on today. I know that. Yeah, yeah. There's an extra bounce in my step just knowing that you were on today. That's funny. <laughs> I've been working. I, it's not that I've not wanted to podcast. It's that I've had to get stuff done. And both of us can't be AWOL for an hour and a half. So... So yeah. I've been taking one for the team, Jeff. An hour and a half, that's it? <laughs> there was uh, well, weeks, yeah. there was weeks sure. where Brad and I would just talk to each other on the phone and record podcasts right around that 100th episode time. Was, yeah, it was like exactly. An, it was like an entire week Muskie Mayhem would have had to shut down. Exactly. So, yeah, so Muskie Mayhem could not afford to shut down for, for the amount of podcasting that you two have done. I just took one for the team. Well, that's right. You take one for that team. Brad will take one for this team. Hopefully, all the teams are winning right now. I guess I don't know. It'll be <laughs> it'll be good in the end. You know what this means, though, Brad, is that you and I get to just kick back a little bit and uh, and relax this episode. We'll just let Carrie handle it. I agree, Jeff. I mean, you might as well just let her shine. I mean, it's been a while, so let her take over. We can kind of do a little napping or something like that. Yeah, uh-huh. I'll just, probably not. We'll just uh, control the flow a little bit if needed. Otherwise, uh, we'll just let her handle it. I can see that. I mean, it seems like that would be, you know, the proper way to welcome her back. Be like, here, this is your podcast. You handle it. Deal with it. Yep, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Feeling the love, Jeff. Feeling the love. Hey, I'm happy that you're back. But uh, well, when it comes to this episode, we do have a guest. We're talking to Eric Tui, Catch and Capture Guide Service out of Northern Wisconsin. Our primary focus today is going to be uh, a little bit on fly fishing and and uh, some on gear fishing as well. He he's a multi-species angler as far as I mean he's multi-species too, but he's also catching them on the fly. He's catching them on regular traditional musky gear. Passionate young angler. Call him young. I think that's l- legit, right? I mean, if he's younger than me, then he's still young, right? Yep, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so definitely a young angler. I've shared some time in the boat with Eric. Really good guy. I know. Uh, I did some ice fishing with him in December. Me and Steve Jensen and Eric went fishing together. And it was always fun. It's it's a good time to to have Eric around, and I'm sure he'll provide some knowledge on some uh, on some topics that maybe we haven't. Uh, I mean, we've talked fly fishing, but I think we're going to dive more into the X's and O's on the gear side of it this time. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, you know the the world of fly fishing and the musky world, anyway. It's a small percentage, but there does seem to be some sort of a growth pattern there. So I think uh, if we can hopefully lay out some good questions and hopefully gain some knowledge about what the fly fishing for muskies is truly about. Yeah, for sure. There's no doubt about that. So, um, you know, give everybody a little a little break, a breakdown of this. Uh, I'm Jeff with Team Rhino Outdoors. If you're looking for gear for your 2021 season or year, whatever, I always say season, but it's because I have seasons. And uh, I know Brad and Carrie have seasons. You can check out teamrhinooutdoors.com. Getting new stuff every single day, it seems like. Yesterday we got piles of stuff. If you're looking for the trigger from Muskie Mayhem Tackle, we have quite a few of them. I know that's what I've 
you know, I've been trying to keep Carrie as busy as possible. I figure I didn't really want her on the podcast, so if I throw more orders at her, she'll stay away a little longer. <laughs> yeah, you're you you're doing a good job, you and everyone else. Yep. Well, that's good. That's good. To, yep. That's good that you're staying busy. And my co-hosts today are Brad and Carrie Hoppy with Musky Mayhem Tackle. And if you want gear from them, check out muskymayhemtackle.com. Uh, Brad, last week we kind of teased that you were going fishing, and I think you did go fishing, right? Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we did. Um, we slipped down to Iowa, something I hadn't done, and I was trying to figure it out on my trip down there. <laughs> I don't think I had been there for 21, maybe even, it was 20 to 22 years ago. It was before That's, me. Yeah, it, it's been a long time, but absolute blast um, is all I can really truly say. We got down there, we fished with Ryan Becker, and if you're looking for a guide down in that Iowa area, Ryan Becker is is a guide and uh, definitely somebody that uh, I would recommend going fishing with. We ended up dealing with big wind. Um, there was still a lot of ice shelves on the water, but uh, most of them got blown out of the way, so it was pretty cool. Um, so we did an ice fishing, or excuse me, ice out musky fishing, if you will. What it really entailed was we, we threw some twitch baits, we threw some blades, we threw some rubber, and guess what? You know, in, in two days, Friday and Saturday, I didn't get down there till late Friday. Um, we got on the water around 2.30 or so. We ended up with three fish on the first day and two the second, and we were filming it. So when we were filming, unfortunately, it takes a little bit extra time. And because of that time, I think we missed kind of some of the bite window. The bite window was really short, but uh, definitely extreme. And we moved a ton of fish. Sunday, we ended up getting blown off. We did fish about half a day, but uh, 44 mile an hour winds were, uh, were the answer for Sunday. So ended up packing it up a little bit early, but a uh, successful trip all the way around and had an absolute blast. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm just jealous that you got to go out and do a little early season musky fishing. So, Brad, if you don't mind me asking, like, I mean, what, what baits were the ones that shined the most? And you talked a little bit about what you, you know, what were you were throwing, but why don't we talk about a little bit about what you were catching, if you can. Yeah, it was amazing. You know, uh, the rubber bait, we were using the uh, Lake X Toad, unweighted, and uh, two fish came on that. And then we got two fish on, I'm not even sure exactly what it is. It's about an eight-inch twitch bait from the Custom X from Chaos Tackle. Um, maybe you know what that bait, the actual name is, but it's a little twitch bait. Yeah, I think they call it maybe like the Mini X or something like that. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't familiar with the correct name on that, but uh, we got two on that. And then I caught my fish on a single girl, and I probably moved more fish than the others. Honestly, I would compare it to like an early September bite. I mean, the fish slammed the baits, and before the window would open we were moving a ton of fish and so actually got to see a bunch of fish on the blades actually. And I, I think, uh, I think if we would have played more in the blade realm, I think we would have done really well. Well, I mean, it sounds like you guys did really well with or without the blades. So that was, uh, that's good to know and good to hear. And, uh, apparently if there's open water down there and, and people can get out fishing, which is, you know, super awesome. I'm jealous of everybody that's out musky fishing right now. I keep getting pictures sent to our Facebook page or Instagram pages on people catching fish. And I mean, that's awesome. I, I love seeing it. I'm just jealous of them all. Yeah. Hands down. I mean, I, it's, it's kind of weird for me. It's been years since I 
fished early, you know, out of state as well as uh, early in the season like this. Uh, there was a time in my life where I'd head down to Kentucky quite often and um, always got to participate early before the Minnesota season opened. It was just fun to be on the water, honestly, Jeff. And it was a beautiful day, couple days. We could have did without a little bit of that wind. I think Saturday was blowing 30-some miles an hour. And it was uh, – it was challenging with boat control and such, but hey, we got the job done. That's all that truly matters. Absolutely. So the footage you said you told me you were filming. When you got any hint on when we might be able to see something here with this? Yeah, we're working on a new project, and uh, you know, as it develops, I will definitely bring more to the table with that. But uh, it'll be the first episode of the year. Probably hinted right there on kind of what we're going to do with it. So really excited to be doing a bunch of filming again and. We're not only going to do the stuff that we've been doing on YouTube. As you know, we uh, we did a pro staff profiles this, this winter, and there's one more episode coming out. When this airs, it'll be coming out Monday after this airs on. What day is it, Jeff? Wednesday, what? I think it's the 31st. 30. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, the following Monday after the 31st will be the last of the pro staff profiles for the year. Definitely go check them out. It's uh, highlighting some of our our pro team, if you will, and uh, kind of giving you a little bit of insight on who they are and what makes them tick. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Carrie. That's what I got to do while Brad went fishing. I, I don't know. Bluegill fish, crappie fish. It's typical for you. Maybe you got to work. I don't know. Did you get so lucky you had to work, too? Yeah, I got so lucky I got to work. Oh, lucky you. I got to as well. Brad's off fishing. I was off working. <laughs> oh yeah, I went holy buckets. This is really starting early this year. Yeah, but it's, it's okay. Been, yeah, it's been really busy. That well, last weekend when Brad was off fishing, that was the weekend of the virtual Wausau show, and I mean, there was a show, but for us it was virtual, and we were super busy. Super thankful for everybody that's come out and. And uh, supported our website over the course of this this winter. It's been um, it's been great. I've said it before. I don't miss all the travel of the shows. I don't miss looking at my phone all the time on you know weather and and seeing something. Oh man, there's gonna be snow on Friday. I hope that changes. And you're constantly looking every twelve hours to see if the path has changed. You know about a week before. I don't miss all that. But the one thing I can definitely say is I missed I missed the customers. I definitely missed that this winter. I miss talking to a lot of people. They give they always give us a lot of great feedback that we don't necessarily get, you know, when we're not in person. I don't know about you, but in 20, what would it be like the winter of 2020, right before everything started to go south, I got a lot of feedback on, you know, people that wanted certain guests on the podcasts. They would tell me topics they liked that they didn't like. They would give us a lot of feedback on the podcast. And so I liked a lot of that. And not, not only that, just on Team Rhino Outdoors in general, they would talk to me about color patterns and different stuff. And can you do this? And can you do that? And so I missed all that. I liked hearing their stories. I like hearing the fishing stories. I like everything about the show part about it, but I don't miss the travel. I don't miss the setup. I don't miss the hustling around. I don't miss trying to tear down as fast as you can and race out of there so that you can get back home and then kind of get back to business as usual when you get home. So I didn't miss any of that, but I, I definitely missed the other part. But everybody, you know, a lot of people came out and supported us all winter long. And for that, we want to thank everybody because it was, you know, I guess, pretty incredible is all I could say. Yeah, uh, Brad and I have to say the same thing. I mean, we definitely miss the people 
for us, it, it's a little bit challenging shows are because we have so much going on all at the same time. It's hard, it's hard to stop production. So like you'll see Brad at a show and not me at a show for that reason, because we don't have a choice. We have to keep going, but we really do have to help, have to thank everybody who supported us on our website this year and, and through our retailers, all of our retailers, it's been, it's been pretty amazing and we, and we really do appreciate it. hundred percent. So I guess, do you guys have anything else that you need to add to, to the beginning here? Nothing that I can think of, Jeff. Well, why don't we get going with our conversation with Eric Tui, Catch and Capture Guide Service. All right, our guest today is Eric Tui with Catch and Capture Guide Service out of northern Wisconsin, I would say like probably the more Hayward area. I'm, I met Eric through Steve Jensen. Steve's a good friend of mine. I've fished with Eric a few times, and Eric's going to probably bring a little bit to us as far as uh, gear and fly fishing because he's not just a, he's not just a, you know, a regular traditional gear guy. You know, he's, he's doing it um, multiple different ways. In fact, Eric, I think you actually prefer to catch him on the fly, don't you? I mean, it is the ultimate ultralight, you know, no matter what species you're catching, uh, it is uh, definitely rewarding to catch them on a fly. And I hope to today to bring a little bit of kind of the ins and outs of the fly fishing aspects and for maybe some listeners that are, you know, thinking about getting into the sport or having a you know rod set up in the boat and uh, giving a leg up. So Cool. Let's dive into that a little bit as far as your background is concerned. Why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, your, I guess your, your uh, experience and how you got into musky fishing. Talk a little bit about your guide service and uh, I'll just give you, I'll give you the stage for a little bit. Awesome. Yeah. So I grew up in uh, Minnesota, actually kind of in the Twin Cities, if you would. Spent a lot of time fishing just in general as a youngster. And uh, when I was in high school, I got into gear fishing for muskies and fell in love with the sport right away um caught my first uh 41 42 inch muskie uh when i was a junior uh the first summer season uh on a metro lake which was really cool on a regular colored or a walleye colored regular size bulldog uh still got it hanging on my wall to this day so it kind of put me in the path of even when I went to college, I went to school up in Northern Minnesota, up at Bemidji State University. As uh, a lot of you listeners are knowing, Bemidji is a great musky uh, place as well. In the midst of college, I was, you know, fly fishing for pike and bass and trout and steelhead and you name it. And I was uh, throwing a lot of gear uh, for musky still. And all of a sudden I kind of started picking up, you know, a little bit of whispers about, anglers using fly rods for muskies. And so I kind of dove into it, you know, just head first. Uh, you know, flies weren't really something that you could go to a shop and purchase musky flies. Uh, we were having to kind of craft them ourselves. And I remember the first fly tied, it was on like a big seven-aught eagle claw hook and it's just a bunch of hair. It was terribly like heavy, like waterlogged type heavy. And one of my buddies just thought it was the craziest thing to see in his boat. He didn't think I would raise a fish. And actually, the first day I had a 46, uh, I raised her in the figure eight and everything, and she broke off. But, you know, it was just kind of like this eye-opening thing, like, okay, they they will chase a fly. And so then, uh, as the sport being just, you know, so young in in kind of the fly fishing for muskies, um, started, you know, connecting with some other anglers that, you know, have had experience and 
learning some of the tying and uh, even our, our fly tying, you know, now is, it's more engineered than anything. Uh, you know, we want to be able to have that big presentation, but we're also trying to, you know, we don't want to wreck our shoulder. We need to be able to cast these things too. So, and we'll dive more into that type of stuff. So, you know, I, I kind of just ran with gear and fly kind of leaned a little bit more towards fly for a number of years. I, I, I ended up uh, having the great opportunity to come to uh, the Hayward area, if you would, to guide for an outfitter and uh, work with the outfitter for a couple of years. Uh, we were specializing mostly on the rivers at that time and uh, had a great couple of, you know, seasons, uh, you know, out doing that. And then eventually, um, you know, kind of broke off, did a lot of other things, but, you know, continued on muskie fishing and uh, going into my sixth season then guiding and, I offer fly fishing, uh, not only for muskies, but smallmouth bass too, but also do the conventional gear uh, side of things on both all spectrums. Um, I love any part of the muskie fishing, so, you know, I'm, I'm in it no matter what. <laughs> so, Eric, let's talk a little bit about the gear that you use for fly fishing. I know that the majority of our audience probably isn't into fly, but we like to try to open your eyes a little bit into stuff and, and get Brad and Carrie and myself to spend a little money. This is how this works out, so... Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, what's, what's some basic stuff that people are going to need if they want to get involved in this? I don't know that we've ever broke down just, you know, gear. I mean, if you're looking to get in it and you need a setup, can you get involved with one setup and, and, or do you need multiple? Like a lot of guys run with, you know, traditional gear or one, I don't know much about it. So why don't you kind of give us your expertise? Yeah. So, you know, just like you're saying, you know, on the gear side, it's nice to have a lot of rods for different applications. And, you know, the fly aspect, you know, there's a lot of different lines that we use for different applications. And so, you know, you could get away with one rod and your reel. Um, a lot of times the spool can pop off and you can purchase other spools and you could have those preloaded with, say, three different lines and you could cover the spectrum of a topwater uh, presentation to something that's just, you know, subsurface, you know, something that can hang a little higher above, you know, say cabbage weed beds, and then all the way to a sinking line. So a line that's really going to dredge down deep to be able to, you know, bring that presentation to a proper depth that you need to be able to fish for that given scenario or circumstances time of the year. So the, you know, kind of gear, you know, we have, you know, uh, a heavy lure that, you know, is casted with the rod, you know, the flip side with fly fishing is that our lines are what we're using to actually cast. So, um, you know, this kind of dates me back, but, you know, watching the old Larry Dahlberg episodes and stuff, he did this great kind of pike and predator fishing and he explained it in a great way. You know, you can grab a daredevil spoon, you throw it a country mile, but you take a little, say, trout fly, you, you know, you try to throw it. It's like, you know, almost like throwing air. There's just not going to go anywhere. So our lines are what is creating that energy in the rod to then, you know, get a, a, our lure or our fly, you know, out into the zone, if you would. So someone can get away with one setup. Multiple setups are nice um, just because, you know, you can grab that rod and start fishing, you know, that whatever scenario you're in. So versus having to, you know, disassemble and reassemble, you know, from line to leader to fly. So uh, the rods that we're using, just like on the gear side, you know, they're, they're big pool cue rods, if you would. So we're using the same side on the fly fishing end. You know, as a gear side or traditional tackle, you know, a rod might be a heavy action rod. Now, 
On the fly side, we use a numerical, uh, which is a, say a 10 weight, 10 being uh, the stiffer uh, rod. So they make them all the way up to you know 12 weights, 14 weights. But a 10 weight is probably the kind of do-all uh, rod, especially, you know, a good, uh, 10 weight rod. It's something that, you know, a lot of anglers would use in the salt water, say for tarpon. So, uh, you know, the early days we borrowed a lot of salt water stuff and you applied it then into, you know, our, our musky fishing, you know, in freshwater, just because these things weren't available. And now we actually have, you know, a number of manufacturers that are producing, a musky fly rod, you know, something that is meant to be able to throw big lines, to be able to carry, you know, longer casts with big flies and to be able to handle these fish too. Um, you know, whether it's fighting a fish and hooking it in the figure eight or hooking a fish further out, you know, we all, we're still borrowing that same practice of, you know, Hey, we want to fight this fish, have fun with it, but we also want to get in the net as soon as possible, not expel too much energy if you go too light in a fly rod, say like an eight weight, which would be traditionally used for maybe bass and light pike. I've actually had a buddy who got tennis elbow because it's not the proper setup. It's too light. So err on that side of a 10 weight, that way you can, you know, throw a lot of different flies and also too for the safety of the fish. Well, Eric, I'm at, I am actually looking at potentially doing, doing this, but I'm very, very green. When it comes to sure. fly fishing, I do have, I think it's like a five weight fly rod, a really light one for fish and pan fish. And I mm-hmm. am, honest to God, the worst fly fisherman in the world when it comes to casting. So if you were going to go full greenhorn, full basic, but you want to get into it, you're saying get it like a 10 weight rod. Now, I've had other people tell me to go with like a 12 weight rod. I'm, I'm going to guess they're fairly similar. The 10 is going to be a little softer. Yep. Yeah. Um, so every rod is a little different. Just like, a, you know, say you grab a, you know, St. Croix off the shelf to another, you know, each blank can be a little different, but that 10 to 12 weight. Yeah. That's, that's a good range to be in for sure. Okay. And then, like you said, full on greenhorn, what would, what do you prefer? Do you prefer the weighted line versus the more floating line? I mean, where, where do you get your best percentage for actually hooking up with a fish? Because in fly fishing, if you've not ever done it, the, once you figure out the mechanics for casting, and like I said, I have not, it's not terribly difficult, but figuring out the mechanics it can be if you don't have someone to show you how to do it or figure out how to do it. Um, so you get these guys who want to try it and they invest all this money and then they can't catch anything. Then, you know what I mean? What's your best average? You go surface, you go below the surface, you know, somebody's just going to start. Cause even if you're yeah. a happy character and you hook up on one, they'll stick with it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think a great starting point for most anglers would be going to a full intermediate line. Uh, a lot of the full intermediate lines on the market are built in a capacity where the head of the fly line, the very front portion of the fly line is, you know, maybe a little bit more drastically weighted where it's really thick. So that allows us to throw, you know, a good size fly if we so choose, but it's, it's a lot more of a forgiving line. So you're, you know, even if you're having a few imperfections in your cast, you know, you're still going to be able to build up that energy and learning those mechanics 
in, in getting a cast out there that's, you know, sufficeable distance to be able to fish. And it covers a good spectrum. It may not work great for top water, but, you know, we're not always throwing top water every day of the week. So I think that intermediate will shine across the board for anyone starting out for fishing subsurface flies. Then, then they can kind of build from there. Um, it, it, it'll help, I think, the aesthetics, you know, that, that learning curve is maybe some of the hardest part or the scariest part for some people. But, you know, it's amazing to go from, you know, a really light setup like that to something that's got a little bit more force. You can really feel the rod load up with the intermediate line and you can build those aesthetics fairly quickly. So um, a lot of lines now, the manufacturers are uh, color coding them in a way. So, you know, it might go from a running line that's blue and then that head, the thickest portion that's, you know, giving that, that all that energy in the rod to make the cast you know, that might be in a yellow or chartreuse, if you would. So you, you can visually now see that versus just a feeling in the rod and casting. So there's a lot of nuances that are helping anglers out, no doubt, um, in getting started. But that'd be the route if I were just starting out or a recommendation for someone just wanting to start getting into it. Okay, so how about then a recommendation on, like, I, I have access to people who know how to fly fish, Okay. I haven't utilized that, but I do have access to. Even Brad knows how to fly fish better than, well, Brad does know how to fly fish. Brad lived out west, so that's what you do when you're out west, you fly fish. But what if someone doesn't have access to a fly fisherman, wants to get set up, but needs to learn the mechanics on how to cast? Is there a good place to, like, is there a good YouTube? Is there a good, do you have any good suggestions on how someone can learn how to do it? Because there is a trick to it. It's not just, yeah. Whip it out there like you do with a bait caster. Correct. Correct. It's we're we're having to build energy in the rod with you know correlating with the line to then, you know, produce that cast. And you know, we don't want to make, you know, fifty false casts just to build up energy. We want to try to narrow that down. If we could do one pump in our back cast and shoot sixty feet of line, that's that's efficiency at its at its greatest level that you can get with fly fishing. And as we know, with musky fishing, efficiency is everything. So, uh, and then, you know, in turn, we're wearing ourselves. We are not going to wear ourselves out. So starting out with casting, um, you know, if you don't have like a local shop that maybe does like casting instructions or anything like that, or maybe not a guide that's readily available in your area, YouTube is obviously a fantastic avenue. You can learn just about everything on YouTube, and there's a ton of great casters out there. Um, there's a book by a gentleman, uh, Lefty Cray, uh, who produced a, the, a, the Essence of Fly Casting. You know, that's going to talk and dive into a bigger spectrum of, you know, maybe uh, scenarios while you're trout fishing or steelhead fishing and other situations, but you're going to gain those aesthetics from that. They, I believe he did produce a video a uh, number of years back that would most likely be available, you know, for someone to purchase on DVD. All those things, I think, is just learn those aesthetics and then, you know, just get in the backyard or on a nice, you know, lawn turf to where uh, you can, you know, start to get a feel for those casting and the, the movements and the aesthetics and building up that energy. And then from there, you know, we refer to a, a single or double haul, which is you know, how can we produce more energy quicker with less cast and get that bait out or fly out there right now? All right. So I'm just going to keep moving right along here. 
Yeah. We've gone over line. We've gone over, you know, rods. I mean, on the, on the rods, I mean, I know fly rods, you can, you can go, fly rods can be crazy, crazy yeah. expensive. Is there a, like an entry level type that you don't, like I said, I was talking to Brad about this. I'm like, I don't want to spend a ton of money. What if I do it one time and I don't, and I suck and I never do it again? You know what I mean? Right. Right. You don't want to go buying an $850 fly rod necessarily. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's a lot of great manufacturers out there that, you know, recognize, you know, what, what the general population wants to spend on fishing equipment. And, you know, there are tons of rod manufacturers that are going to be anywhere from that 150 to $250 range. You know, that's kind of what you're going to look at for having something of, of good quality. You're going to get a good warranty with it. Just, you know, one of the uh, manufacturers I've been working with on the fly rod end has been Red Truck Fly Fishing. Um, they're out of Sacramento, uh, California, but they offer rods from, you know, your trout stuff to uh, switch rods and spay rods, which are a two-handed rod capacity, all the way to, you know, these what would be classified as a saltwater rod, um, you know, 10 weights and 12 weights that, you know, I'm using in the muskie uh, side of things and, um, are great performing rods. There are a number of them that, you know, are kind of right in that ballpark, kind of 250 range, if you would. The sky's the limit, as you, as you may know, with fly fishing. So, you know, if you can kind of find something in that $150, $200 range, I think you're going to be in a good position uh, for a good quality rod, too. You know, you don't want something that could blow off uh, in your hands on a figure eight hook set. So, you know, the line is probably going to be something, too, that might be a little scary because, line, you know, you're going to spend 80 to a hundred dollars on a fly line. It sounds crazy, but that it does last a long time, especially when you take care of it. All the line manufacturers are really pretty awesome to work with. So just in case, let's say, you know, it, your line got caught on a cleat and it, you know, tore a little bit into the coating of the fly line, you know, that manufacturer will stand by it. And more often than not, they'll give you like a five-year warranty and they'll replace it. No questions asked. So the other thing, you know, then too, is the reel, you know, reels, you can have these beautiful machined aluminum, uh, saltwater reels, you know, realistically though, for us in the fly fishing side, it's just a glorified line holder. You know, when you think, you know, when you put it in perspective though, if you get a nice reel and Hey, you get that opportunity to go chase tarpon down in the keys, if you would, you know, you have a great setup now to be able to do that as well. So if you're starting out, you know, just a basic fly reel that's going to hold the line, that's all it is at that point in time. So I know you said the one brand on the rod. Do you have any suggestions on, like, brand specific? And the, and the rods, the reels, the line, the whole works. Just a couple, like, suggestions that you like to use? Yep. So uh, Red Truck Fly Fishing, uh, they make a great 10-weight all the way to 12-weight rods. Um, one of their kind of sister companies is Leland Fly Fishing. Um, they have a tarpon 12 weight. That rod is unreal, the amount of power that it has. It's not like other 12 weights where it might feel really stiff. It, it kind of has a soul. Like you can really feel it load up and cast. It doesn't feel chunky, if you would. Um, and these are things that you may pick up with as you, experience, you know, get more experience with casting. Um, some other notably manufacturers. Um, uh, Limit Creek, they produce a two-handed uh, fly rod for muskies. Chippewa River Custom Rods, uh, which is not too far from the Hayward area, 
Uh, Tommy produces a two-handed musky fly rod as well as single-handed musky fly rods. Uh, Echo Fly Fishing, which is out of Washington, uh, they one of the early rods that I started out using through them was the Echo Ion, which I believe they still make. Ballpark, I want to say they're about 150 bucks. Uh, lifetime warranty with them. They're absolutely a workhorse. They can take the beating and the tolls and just for a price point. Reddington, uh, Temple Fork Outfitters, they actually produce not only gear rods, but they also produce uh, fly rods. Uh, Blaine Chocolate has his, uh, his signature ESOX rod, and they, you know, that rod is kind of built for the muskie uh, fly angler. I believe Echo does now produce also a muskie fly rod, which is a kind of in a two-handed rod capacity. So there are, there are a number of great manufacturers out there to meet just about any price point or give you a number of options and price points. Um, even St. Croix right out our uh, back door, you know, they have the Imperial fly rod and I believe they make that all the way to a 10 weight capacity. And that I believe right there is a great price point too for anglers to get into. Okay. So before you, before you jump into something else, when you say I've only ever seen a single handed fly rod. So what's yep. the advantage or disadvantage between a single and a and a two handed? So two-handed fly rods were, you know, originally a spay rod uh, capacity that was used out in the Northwest Pacific and other areas for salmon and steelhead and uh, traditionally swinging a fly. They started to produce a smaller rod, which is called a switch rod. A switch rod, you can use it in a single-hand capacity or a double-handed capacity. On the East Coast now, guys that are fishing stripers from shore you got to have a really far cast on the occasion, especially with a fly rod. So right. they found that using two hands and the levering that you can create in your cast with two hands can produce energy a lot quicker a low, and to load a, a rod much quicker and easier with less false cast. So that, that two-handed rod would be more, you utilize it more lever wise like you would with traditional gear yeah it's still fly casting you still have to have those aesthetics but you're able right. to build up that energy a lot quicker and actually some of the rods too will throw a much heavier fly line and to be able to take over like say a bigger fly and because of the ergonomics you sometimes are not expelling too much energy so you're not as fatigued at the end of the end of the day so something that's very new to the musky fly fishing side of things probably within the last three, four years. Is it more difficult to figure out your mechanics then with a two-handed rod versus a regular single hand? I would probably say if you're starting out, they'd probably be pretty equal. Okay. The, you know, there are some anglers that just prefer the single-handed style rod. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's some anglers that, no, they, they specifically fish two-handed musky fly rods and and the, it works you know and you can still use that two-handed rod and cast in a single-handed capacity is that's kind of the beauty of a two-handed rod they will kind of do both sides so and essentially it's kind of a personal preference yeah a little bit comes down to that cool all right so then how about like i know you're some lines lines or yeah like brands of lines 
Yeah, so some manufacturers, uh, Cortland, uh, you know, they make Cortland Mastery Brake. Cortland has been, you know, producing fly lines. They're one of the first fly line manufacturers out there, and they're still producing a fantastic product. They actually have a subgenre of musky fly lines. Uh, they have a much heavier core, so they can take that heavy, you know, hook set and the you know power that these fish have. They accommodate for warm temperatures as well as cold temperatures. An angler wouldn't necessarily want to go to a full tropical fly line that they'd use down in Florida, especially when it's November. It's not going to work well because that line, that coating is kind of built for what the air temperature might be or water temp would be. So Cortland would be one. Scientific Anglers, which is out of the Twin Cities uh, by 3M, they also have some musky lines and some great fly lines. Some of the other ones would be Airflow. Uh, they make some awesome lines, some really you know good learning uh, lines for anglers too, like in that intermediate capacity, things that will build energy very fast. Um, Rio also makes some lines. They also have a few musky lines out there as well. So Eric, let's let's change gears. Let's talk about leaders at this point with the fly rod. Are, are you using a tapered leader, like a, a tippet, or what are we using? Yeah, so leaders I actually build myself just because even when I started doing it, these you know a packaged leader for musky fly fishing was not even a thing. <laughs> now you could go into a fly shop and purchase a musky fly fishing or pike and musky fly leader that's built in a capacity, say, with, you know, a fluorocarbon to a bite wire. You know, for me, building them, it, it gives me a little bit of ease that, you know, it, I build them in chunks. So I have off my fly line, generally your fly line will have a loop, an open loop that's made into the fly line. We use a loop-to-loop -loop connection. So I'll take 40-pound fluorocarbon. Generally, I run the Cortland fluorocarbon. I use a perfections loop on one end and as well as the other end. I'll loop to loop that to the fly line. Off the other loop connection, I'll either use, say, 50 or 60 pound bite wire that's coated, typically seven strand, that typically I'm using in darker stained water because I can get away with the, the wire. You still have a lot of good movement out of the fly. Um, on some of our clearer waters, I'll go to a hundred pound fluorocarbon. Hundred pound is still tieable. I'll use uh, perfections loop on one end, and then generally at the very base, I'm using like a stay lock by Mustad, like, and just to be able to the ease of swapping out a fly for a different color, different pattern, right there on the spot. Um, some guys prefer to tie them in. That's fine. It's just you end up cutting that bite wire or your bite section of 100 pound fluorocarbon. And then all of a sudden at the end of the day, you're having to retie a new one. So it saves a little bit on your material a little bit and ease of swapping out. So Eric, for the guys who, who don't know the difference between a, a fly leader and a regular leader, can you explain that a little bit? Cause I know, I mean, you could have a tippet that's feet long versus, you know, your typical gear musky leader is 12 inches 18 inches maybe yeah so kind of the breakdown you know a lot of our fly fishing leaders are tapered so they go from maybe as thick as 20 pound and they go down as skinny 
as maybe five pounds test. And, you know, for trout, it's a great way to have a nice presentation. You know, these fish are, they see a lot and we don't want to spook that fish and having a clean presentation. Now, on the flip side, if we're, you know, streamer fishing for anything with a, a line that's going to be subsurface, we actually shorten our leaders. We actually go to something right about 36 inches overall in length. So I'll keep my bite guard section, whatever that material is, roughly in kind of about that 18-inch range, and then the rest is my 40-pound uh, fluorocarbon from there. Are you ever incorporating swivels when you're fly fishing? I am. I haven't. I haven't seen a, a huge use for them where you know, my fly line or something is getting looped up or tangled in any way. Um, sometimes on the occasion, if an angler is casting and they're not exceeding the line that's hanging out, it can get a little bit of a cant. If that happens, remove the fly, cast out as much line as you can, let a bunch of line out and just run the trolling motor if you would. It lets a little bit of that weave that happened uh, come out and then reel it back in and you're kind of starting fresh there if it does ever get beyond uh, needed. Um, but I've never needed a swivel for my applications. Right. For those of you who wind up your uh, regular conventional rod and gear, you can, you can do that with that too. Like a lot of times when we first get a reel and get new line on it, what we'll do is let it out the boat and just keep driving and then reel it in as you're driving with only the leader and the and the clip on there, no bait on there, and just reel it in. And that'll straighten out your line, too, if it gets really spun up on your regular gear. It's amazing for me. when I, I like full reels. And, yeah. you know, Keith Enberg, you know, he's uh, he's repaired a lot of my reels, and he's just like, man, Brad, he goes, you pack the, the, the line on top of your school. <laughs> And and what I do is I literally, when I'm standing here in the shop and I reload a brand new reel, I will fill that thing up to no end, basically um, tell I can't turn the line anymore. And what's amazing is, is you get in the boat and you put it at about four miles an hour and just start heading across the lake. And I let that line back out and I pack it back into that spool, just being wet and also yep. that little bit of pressure from going four miles an hour it pretty much fills your reel right to its right capacity. You know, a few times on a different occasion, depending on the reel that you're using, you will strip out a little bit and retie your leader and everything's good. But uh, I like a full reel. It gives the reel yeah. its full, full potential of performance. So yeah, you, you have the correct gear ratio for what, you know, that reel is made for. Exactly. One other question that I have on the fly side is, Generally speaking, you're fighting the fish stripping the line, correct? Um, you never go to the reel, I would assume. Correct. Yes, you're absolutely right. And I was just getting that to that. You know, we that are our own gear ratio. You, we all know how fast, you know, one tail kick, this fish can go in any direction uh, that they want to go. And I've, I've yelled at my clients. I'm like, reel that thing down so that rod is bent. You know what I mean? And on that gear side. And the flip side with fly fishing, we're actually stripping and using our maybe our two fingers or our pointer index finger on the rod to maintain a little bit of tension as well as our, our other hand, our stripping hand, whatever side that is on. 
and you know fighting that fish we can allow for line to you know slip out if need be as our own drag but we are fighting them you know hand to line the, our reels you know even though they make these beautiful large arbor saltwater reels we just cannot pick up enough line to actually maintain tension to the fish that makes sense so one more rookie question eric yep. how do you Shoot. how do you select what fly you're going to use like if I was going to go and I was going to buy five flies tomorrow, what, yep. what would I look for? Um, I would start off for sure having one or two flies that are going to be in a single hook capacity. You know, it sounds crazy, a single hook. It's when a fly is tied in a certain manner, whether it's reverse tying bucktail, maybe with a big deer hair head spun on the front, that fly moves in a manner that is uh, take a eight inch glide bait it looks almost identical you can make it move just like that you're going to be able to produce bigger you know pauses and let that hover and those materials are always moving of course but it's a really easy platform to start off casting fish i mean there's a lot of fish that love eating the eight inch bait i think that fly size is a good one to start off with and then I would maybe add something that's going to be a little bit bigger, something that's articulated. So you might have the use of a shank and a hook or two hooks in a capacity. There are now flies that we're using and building multiple shanks. When that fly is stripped, it looks like a minnow swimming through the water or a big sucker minnow swimming through the water, if you would. And the materials then that we're using too is, is, shedding water more you know synthetic that can shed water in a back cast so we're not casting like a wet sock natural and synthetics are something to kind of consider too when looking at flies with a sinking line a synthetic fly is probably going to sink a little quicker through the water column with a full sinking line we might go to a natural hair like bucktail that's reverse tied bucktail is hollow in the middle so it actually is very neutrally buoyant. If you took that fly and put it on a floating line, it's going to probably sit on the surface until it becomes a little waterlogged. The lines actually help manipulate our flies, not only to where we need to gain them for depth, but actually manipulate them into swimming then because that bucktail is so neutrally buoyant. And then in correlation with our line, that thing is swimming. Are, are you using, Eric, when you're going to top water? are you using any kind of pace that uh, helps that fly float? I mean, I know in the dry fly world out, you know, west doing fly fishing, we would always use, I believe it was a silicone-based pace of the game smear on the fly. Yeah. Yep. So we, we don't necessarily, I don't do the, anything like that. Um, just with, uh, you know, on the trout side, you know, it's there's small flies that are tied with natural materials and, you know, that floating does help for buoyancy on our side of things, you know, it's a big chunk of foam in some, you know, capacity. So some of our foam poppers, you might be a, a tapered shaped head or a cut block section that's going to push water and create that big, you know, gurgle and pop that we like a pattern that a uh, number of my buddies that I used to guide with in the outfitter, we kind of developed uh, a fly called the chugger knot. It's actually a fly, a tapered foam head that's on a tube fly. So a, a section of tubing that has a, maybe a bass skirt or two, if you want to add any tinsel to it, 
couple beads, and then we take actually a single hook musky fly, flip that in, and now you have a top water. As long as it's used on, say, like a floating line or maybe an intermediate tip line that has a floating rear, that fly it is a big presentation. It moves a ton of water, but it also gives an angler for top water a really high hooking percentage because if you have a chunk of foam on one single hook, you got to think that fish bites down on it. How are you able to turn that hook into piercing the corner of its mouth? So having that tube fly to slide out of the way, it gives an angler a really, really high hooking percentage. Awesome. So maybe now is a good time to switch into like seasonal tactics. Are you basically using this right from the beginning of the season all the way till ice up? Or is this something that uh, you only use, say, in the month of July or, you know, and then also waters? I mean, are you, are you doing mostly lake fishing with your fly gear or are you doing a, a bunch of river stuff? Yeah, so for me and my guiding, it's pretty much primarily on lakes. There are some... Uh, you know, riverway flowages, if you would, that, you know, does have some current and, you know, gear and fly capacities. With the lakeside, you, as you know, you know, when we get into our mid-season, you know, these fish are generally a little bit deeper. You know, it can be a little more difficult to try to get a fly in the right zone, you know, whereas, you know, you can take that bulldog or that medusa and, you know, you can kind of dredge that thing just in, in where you need it to be. So that's maybe a, a, a time where, you know, it's a, maybe more productive to grab that gear rod. But the early part of the year, you know, we, we see a lot of fish, you know, coming off that spawn mode. They're, they're situating themselves to feed on some of the earliest green weeds that are growing. So uh, a fantastic time to be throwing a musky fly. Um, though generally, you know, we can hold true to that through most of the month of June. As we get later into, uh, you know, say July um, or even early July, some of our, you know, it kind of depends on the lake too. Uh, you know, we have some really stained waters that are maybe generally shallower and those fish just are always kind of situated in a shallower sense. So as long as our water temps are safe to fish them, you know, that's a, still a great, you know, scenario to still be able to have a fly rod as a tactic. You know, even our clear lakes, uh, you know, I had a time where we were throwing gear, we're trucking gear, and it's kind of a little bit of a struggle, Bossa, and I grabbed the fly rod, and my buddy's kind of up front laughing, and he's like, what do you guys do with that thing? I railed a cast out um, off, you know, going from deep to shallow, where we had a weed bed that tapered well into probably, you know, 18 feet of water, and I got bit, you know, so, um, you know, there are, I, I feel that a fly rod, there's always a good time for it. But there's also times where gear might shine a little bit better in a lake scenario. I think rivers, like where you're, you got moving water and you're, you know, as you move down the next hundred feet, you know, you have a new, a new location that you're throwing to. I think those fish are a little bit more opportunistic because in the river scenario. So, you know, there might be a little bit more apt to being able to throw a fly rod from, you know, beginning of the season to ice on in a river scenario. Eric, what, what is your like favorite month? Like I know Brad's favorite month for gear fishing around here is September. September is the money month. Fly fishing wise, do you have a favorite, an absolute favorite? 
I would, I would probably, you know, go right there with Brad on the, you know, that September time frame. You know, you start thinking about that shallow water bite when these fish push up into the shallows, shallow weeds and such. You know, that's a great time for our flies, you know, where we can just hover over the tops of weed beds and still fish it off the edges of the, of the weed beds. And we're, you know, we're getting those fish to react to it. I would also say, you know, that early time frame of the season where, again, our fish are, are shallow. Um, coming out of spawn and you know they're there on those weed beds to eat so uh you know kind of a very similar scenario but maybe not as quite as aggressive as our fall fish honestly dude what you just provided there was incredible because and i think carrie yeah now i have to find out if you have any open dates (laughs) (laughs) well i'd love to have you in the boat and you know get you throwing some fly gear and get a little taste of it at least you know I just want anglers to look at it like it's not completely black magic that we're doing over here. <laughs> right, right. Well, I think there's a stigma about it that it's really hard. And there's a trick to it, but it's super fun. Like even, like I said, I've done it pan fishing and I'm a terrible, terrible caster. But you can almost always catch a bluegill. And it, it's super fun to catch them on it because the fight's amazing. Oh, yeah. It's the gateway drug. Right. <laughs> So Eric, I think you did a great job there going over a bunch of information on, you know, fly gear and what guys need to, to get rolling that in that area and something we never really touched on really uh, in depth on this podcast, but I don't want people to think that you're just a, you know, a fly angler. I've seen you in the boat. I know you, you can throw gear as well as anybody or better than most guys, but um, let's talk a little bit about your preseason prep. I know the season's coming up soon. We talked before we started recording about, you know, some of the lakes up there in Hayward are starting to open up with our long range forecast. It looks like, you know, maybe we're going to see a normal spring. I don't even know what normal is anymore, but it looks like, you know, the ice is going to come off before May 10th and that'll be interesting. And hopefully maybe we could see, you know, weed growth in, in normal spots when we, when we start the seasons out. I know we got a little bit of time yet in the, for the Southern range or the Northern range of muskies, but why don't we talk a little bit about some of the stuff you go through to to get ready for for the season absolutely yeah so you know a lot of my uh baits if you would i i kind of like to you know hang them up uh during our winter season when i'm doing ice fishing guiding and such great way then for me you know this time of year i'm gonna start pulling baits down i'm gonna inspect my baits so i i'm inspecting my lures i'm looking at you know my split rings how are those looking are you know do i have any rust on any of them do they need to be swapped out uh do i want to upgrade them to something else um and then as well as hooks you know how how are my hooks looking at do they have a you know a little bit of you know potential rust if they need to get you know replaced completely do you you know get that file ready you know you might look at and say oh gosh you know while you're trying to do this you might say oh that file that I had that I had sitting in my center console, it's a big rust bucket. Now you might think, okay, well now it's a good idea to go pick up a new, you know, file for sharpening hooks. So sharpening hooks, going through, uh, you know, the little component aspects, you know, some of the, you know, say a rubber bait or like that favorite bucktail, you know, that you ran a bunch, you caught a bunch of fish on, you might have forgotten that, Oh geez, that thing's shredded. I, I you know, I, I gotta get, I, I need to order another couple of them or that one color that maybe in that bait that shined for you last year, you know, maybe having a spare tire, uh, in the boat and, you know, picking up another one. Um, you know, little things like that, uh, going through, uh, release tools. So 
uh, you know, your draw spreaders, your cutters, all those things, you know, need maintenance too. So, um, you know, a little bit of WD-40 or some type of, you know, grease to maintain them. You know, if you see a little rust spots, you know, a little bit of steel wool kind of helps to clean some of that up too. You know, making sure that those things are operating really well. So you're not in the midst of, you know, fishing and all of a sudden, you know, that hook cutter is not going to cut for you. Little things like that go a long, long ways. Uh, not only that, you know, the boat side of things too, you know, I'm, I'm going through things with the boat, making sure, you know, electronics are working, obviously motor, trolling motor, you know, is it time to refresh those batteries? A lot of guys, you know, this is a great time to, you know, get new batteries put in, or maybe you need to just, you know, set something up a little differently. So little things like that, getting things cleaned up and organized, you know, I'm always looking at trying to find more efficient ways, uh, just whether it's storing stuff in the boat or, you know, keeping these certain types of baits, uh, you know, handy, different ways that you might be looking at things and, you know, get a chance to sit down and go through your gear. And uh, I think now is the best time, you know, than any time. Something that I was told, and I've never tried it, Eric, maybe you have, but, you know, those files that are all rusty, like you're talking, I've heard you throw them in a, a glass of Coke and it cleans them right up. I'm not sure if that works or not, but a guy should Interesting. Try I'll have to try it. I, I know I got a Williamson's one that's sitting on the shelf that is just a freaking rust bucket. I tried actually, there's a gel stripping compound that you can use to strip rust off of metal. It's, it's almost like a orange color, if you would. And I actually tried dipping one in that and, you know, was able to clean it up pretty actually decent you know you want to wear some special gloves with that and so you don't get it on your hands or your skin but it cleaned it up i you know the only flip side is i don't know if that would alter because it's a high carbonate steel so i don't know if that like alters the steel in any way but it seemed like it cleaned up the rust for the time being that's interesting i know with tools a lot of times i'll just like throw them in a little bucket or whatever and just hose them down with some liquid wrench or something you know and it usually yep. breaks them free. It's kind of a mess, but it definitely will salvage some of your tools from being sticky when you're, you know, opening and closing them. So definitely something to think about too. Yeah, our vinegar. I've heard vinegar actually can work pretty good on some of those tools and getting some of the rust, you know, a little bit of the rust off. But a little elbow grease too always helps. A little splash of WD-40. Exactly. So Eric, the other thing yeah. you could do is, you know, guys sometimes will get out on the water and take a look at stuff. I'm imagining since your season, you know, since the fishing season opens in early May and you can't muskies fish, you probably have a, a bunch of time on the water. Do you spend much time looking to see, you know, how weed growth is coming in, that kind of stuff before, you know, you start musky fishing or do you kind of just first set or, you know, whatever, um, the Saturday of around Memorial Day, or I think it's Memorial yep. Day. I always get those two confused. Uh, Memorial Day, do you just start winging it or are you kind of, do you spend some time, you know, checking out your spots and then, you know, as a guide, do you try to fish any new water, you know, from season to season or are you kind of in a, in a routine as far as I hit these 12 to 14 lakes or, and if you do, I mean, if you do any, like, I don't know, let's say scouting, do you, are you looking on like Google maps or are you reading any reports? Are you checking out any lakes that may or may not be something that you want to try for the season? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, like you said, our season in the northern region of Wisconsin is going to open up a little later. 
So a lot of that May chunk, of, you know, I'm doing a lot of smallmouth bass fish, and I'll have some smallmouth clients and maybe a walleye client or two. You know, some of those lakes are also lakes that, you know, we musky fish. And, and flip side, too, we're, you know, maybe working the same similar structure uh, just given time of the year. So we, you know, at a glance, you get a ch- chance to see how some of that stuff is doing, seeing, you know, maybe this weed bed is actually coming in a little stronger this year than it was last year. You know, little things like that definitely play a role. I don't, I guess, go out necessarily to specifically look uh, for, like, you know, say previous spots or, or look to see how they're doing. I might go to a lake that I might musky fish and just spend some time side imaging or actually maybe even remapping and just to get a better idea on some of those ins and outs um you know in may can be so early too to really get a good judgment of you know what's four weeks or three weeks down the road gonna truly look like you know because it it can be so drastic from our general opener to when musky opener is um you know, through years of experience, you know, you kind of have an idea of, uh, you know, X, Y, and Z lake, you know, that generally can fish well for opener. Last year, uh, you know, generally musky opener, I typically try to take a little bit of time off just to musky fish on opener and maybe get together with a buddy or two. I occasionally have bookings for it, but I, I like having that little bit of time just to go and adventure. Actually, last year I went to two completely new lakes that I've never musky fished. I, I kind of went into it understanding that there are lower densities of fish that are in there. Didn't have a ton of information to be able to say on, you know, what's the, you know, other than maybe previous stocking reports, um, nothing necessarily new for fisheries reports, but each lake produced a fish, which was really cool. You know, to be able to adventure, go check out a new lake, you know, maybe that's only 200, 300 acres or much bigger and then to be able to produce is is, you know just icing on the cake so you know i try to find a time a little time to adventure but you know in the midst of the guide season you know too i kind of have a little bit of the you know tricks in the back pockets where you know that certain areas are are going to be you know prime time uh for opener well transitioning away a little bit from you know preseason prep let's talk about early season a little bit you mentioned you know a, a size of lakes and and whatnot Let's talk about your early season approach in the in the Northwoods. Are you looking at, you know, like what kind of lakes are you looking for? Are you looking for clear water, dark water? Are you looking for, you know, big lakes, small lakes? Why don't you kind of talk about, you know, what it is that you that you're looking for that's going to maybe help make you successful early season? Absolutely, yeah. So the Hayward area is crawling with so many unique, uh, you know, types of lakes that we have. We have some that are, you know, part of riverway flowages. We have some that are, you know, dark and tannic and shallow, and we have some that are extremely clear and deep. So I like to kind of start thinking about some of the smaller lakes, whether they're clean or a little bit stained. Those lakes are generally, you know, we're thinking they're going to be warming the, the fastest. So with, you know, warming temperatures to those lakes, we generally see the first or earliest weed growth, uh, you know, on those lakes then. And that, you know, again, for, you know, for me, I, I like to find that early weed growth and that's where a lot of times these most active fish are going to be, you know, two, it could be just as simple as a specific bay or something that's going to be a couple degrees warmer. You know, the, the bigger lakes, uh, they sometimes are trailing behind on that weed growth being built up. 
or, you know, we've had occasion where some fish are still spawning on, a, you know, X, Y, and Z lake still, or where you see some, you know, spawning still happening. So, you know, the bigger lakes can fish, you know, well in the early season, but I, I truly lend, you know, to finding some of the, you know, smaller lakes, um, you know, those fish haven't gotten too much pressure and, you know, they're maybe not as big of a density or maybe a larger density to them too, but it, the smaller lakes just with warming and, you know, seeing early weed growth is, it tends to lend itself to higher percentage. I was just primarily going to talk about, you know, how weed beds change and how some of that stuff is continually, you know, it's, it's a difference every year. And I think a lot of times guys neglect to actually go out and take a look at those weed beds and side imaging is a great tool, but on the flip side, you know, if you can go out on a calm morning where it's really, really nice and still, and visually go find those weed beds and kind of relay them out as well. Absolutely, yeah. I think I think the side imaging helps, but visually seeing things is where we can decipher things on our electronics. But going back to that simplicity of visually seeing the weed beds, visually seeing what types of weeds they are too, um, it's a huge component. I like that idea of kind of calm morning checking it out. And I think it's something that you need to do periodically throughout the season. You know, that's the other side to it too, is that, you know, different weed beds grow at different rates and, you know, fish are using them and utilizing them at different points in time throughout the season. So it's definitely something that you need to consider and, and doing a little bit of homework can put more fish in the boat. That's for sure. It's, it's one of those things that you can do way before the season even starts though. I mean, go find the weed beds, go catch some crappies, go catch some gills. You know, just go for a boat ride. Sometimes it's just nice to be on the water. Like here, once the ice goes off, it's just really nice to be on the water. So usually wait a couple of weeks and then go check it out. And then the water's super clear then too. Absolutely, yeah. Super clean and uh, still a chance to let a, you know, early line for some crappies or something. I don't think I've heard crappies and bluegills mentioned on this podcast since the last time Carrie was on. I think she's uh, I think she's out. We've, we've heard enough. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You knew it was coming, and I keep telling you, the best muskie fishermen are multi-species fishermen. <laughs> Whether they're catching bluegills and crappies, walleyes, pike, whatever, trout, tarpon, I don't care. They're multi-species fishermen or better fishermen. Uh, I won't disagree with you one bit, but like I said, I, <laughs> I don't know that Brad and I bring up crappies and bluegills that often. And here you are <laughs> back for one episode, and right away I got to hear about it. They all live in the same spot. Oh, brother. <laughs> All right. Well, enough bluegills and crappies talk. You know, one thing I hear a lot, Eric, is uh, big, small to start the season out. I know Brad has an opinion and he's going to weigh in on it. What's your opinion? Big baits or small baits to start the season? You know, for me, you know, I still find that 8 to 10 inch to really, really produce. You know, there are some baits that, I mean, or you might get on a body of water and my gosh, that forage is that eight to 10 inch crappie and they love eating those. And, you know, sometimes matching the hatch, if you would, in that way is, is really beneficial. You know, I, I guess I, I haven't, you know, monkeyed too much with really big stuff, but you know, I, for me, it's a confidence thing in that eight to 10 inch range for me starting off in kind of that early part, you know, maybe until about the first or second week of June and then start, you know, especially by June, usually starting to throw a little bit bigger stuff. Well, I think one of the misconceptions is, is that 
for me, I like going large. And the reason I go with large baits is I'm cutting against the grain, if you will. And I'm doing something that nobody else is doing. And the other thing with that is, you know, those fish come off the spawn. They, had the, they have that recoup time, if you will. And when they're recouping, they're looking for a slower, easier meal and a big meal. I mean, why exert a ton of energy for something that's small? Um, I just truly believe that, you know, if you can present something slow, lazy, and large, they're more apt to eat that, especially some of the bigger fish. And that's why I go large in the spring. So like Eric, what would be an example of a, let's just say eight to 10 inch bait that you're going to be looking at for season opener? Typically, obviously, you know, it we're a month and a half out or whatever. And so conditions will obviously dictate that, but let's just say in general, you must have an idea of something that you're going to start with. What are things that you're usually looking to start with for, for the early part of the season? Love a lot of glide baits starting off, uh, you know, hellhounds, uh, warlocks by Ben tackle, um, you know, kind of that full pause, uh, aspect. I think, Showing a little bit of that side profile, uh, you know, for them to T-bone, you know, is a great, great way to approach early season. Um, I think the hover and a little bit of that fall rate, that death pause that you can induce, um, they, they seem to shine really well for me. Um, on the occasion, you know, I have, you know, thrown some smaller bucktails as a, for instance, you know, and, and done okay or well with that, but I would say the glide bait is probably, or glide and jerk baits are probably where they shine for me the most, is especially opening uh, opening season part. Do you incorporate any trolling in your spring uh, spring bite? You know, I actually haven't done a ton of trolling in the spring. You know, I kind of have keep it in the back pocket for kind of when that summer trolling bite, you know, is in swing, and that's typically when i monkey with it i i wouldn't say i'm a big trolling person i i you know i'm more of an active fisherman i want to be casting i want to be casting a fire out or gear rod and you know i love that figure eight eat i mean that's <laughs> it's awesome so I, I i prefer casting but if the time prevails for trolling uh, you know i definitely will dabble in it but i have not uh monkeyed at all with uh early spring trolling yeah, I think part of that's age, Eric, you know, as you get older. <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, every musky angler truly, we all want to cast, I think. Primarily, we all want to cast because of that connection to that fish, that's for sure. And, you know, over the period of the last 10, 15 years, I've added that trolling segment into my month of June, which it's so much fun. And I truly nice. believe that that's, that's how I'm going to catch one of the largest fish in the, in the body of water. And we do every year, you know, it's amazing how many big giant fish we get doing that. Our lakes are maybe a little bit different than yours over in the Hayward area, but I've, I've been on quite a few of those bodies of water over there where I think it could be effective. That's for sure. So it's just, uh, it's just another tool, I guess, in the tool pouch. Yeah, no, you definitely got me thinking, and there's, you know, I light bulbs going off on a few lakes, and I, I may have to, you know, pull the trolling rods out and a couple planer boards for this uh, this June. Well, Eric, we're winding this podcast down. One thing we did on past podcasts a lot was we asked the guests before we signed off, like, one tip, you know, to get, uh, you know, to help people put more fish in the net, either, we usually say this weekend, you know, because it'd be during the season, and we've been off season for a while now. 
but the seasons are rolling. I definitely know like our, our friends down in Illinois and, you know, Kentucky and Tennessee, Ohio, Pennsylvania, all of them are still fishing, West Virginia, Virginia. So if, if you got anything to offer up for somebody, if they're looking to, you know, get a little help to put more fish in the net. Yeah, I think, uh, overall angler intuitiveness I, I think it's really important as soon as you you launch a cast and you're bringing that bait in really just recognizing everything that's going on you know you might have a big fish that hits the bait with the side of its head and you're like well, well if you weren't paying attention you may have just thought you bumped something or not or that the bait followed up even and then that translates back into the figure eight good figure eight uh, and that's all part of being an intuitive angler. I hate to say it, but I've seen a suet, you know, smash into a monkey's head in the figure eight, not on purpose, but that things happen so fast. And if that figure eight was maybe just a touch wider and, you know, trailed that fish onto that outside turn, that would have been a hooked up fish and versus scaring it. <laughs> yeah. I think figure eights are definitely something that all of us can, uh, probably all of us can work on a little bit, I would say. Maybe not necessarily Brad. He's a seasoned veteran, and you know Carrie, she catches plenty. But I, I know a guy like me. I can always work on my uh, my technique a little bit. I was gonna say, come on, Jeff. You know, we all can learn something on the water every given day. So, you know, do I screw up fish? Absolutely. I think you know, no matter how seasoned you are, we all make mistakes, and uh, usually it happens on on the bigger ones for some reason. Like they know. <laughs> It is. It's almost like they know. You're right. It's it's the strangest thing. It's like when you uh, you know, you cast all day long and you pay really close attention to every single follow, and then the one follow you don't pay attention to, that's when it shows up, and you're like, I looked, I watched every single one. I got distracted for just a half a second, and there it shows up. Yep. All right, Eric, I want to thank you for taking some time out of your schedule and, and talk fishing with us. We really appreciate that. If somebody is looking to learn more about you or your guide service or book a trip, how do they go about doing that? Absolutely. Yeah. And thanks for having me on Jeff and for anglers to look the book, uh, you can find me obviously on the social media avenues like Facebook and Instagram. Um, it's a great way to keep up with all the fishy stuff I'm doing. And also, uh, you know, you can reach out that way. Um, I do have a website catchandcapture.com. They can also email me at, uh, info at catch and capture. Or they can give me a call directly, which is, uh, you know, always great to talk to an angler and getting them on the books. They can reach me at 612-384-9127. And Eric, on Instagram, what's your, uh, what's the handle or, or however you pronounce it or however you yeah. go about saying it? <laughs> the, uh, for my handle would be catch and capture, uh, catch underscore cat and underscore capture should be able to find it though. Excellent. Well, once again, Eric, we want to thank you for coming out and, and talking to us about musky fishing. I hope that I get to, you know, I'll be up in the Hayward area, I'm sure, this year. And I know when Steve and I are doing some filming, sometimes if you have the availability, you jump in the boat with us and, and try to help us uh, with an extra rod to give us a hand. So I hope that we get to share the boat again this year. It was, uh, I had a fun time chasing uh, flags with you early, you know, in December, late last year. So that was good. And it's always great to get out in the water with you. So I'm hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to do it again this year. Absolutely. Yeah. Truly looking forward to it. Thanks again, Eric, for coming out. And we want to thank all of our listeners for, uh, for tuning in again this week and we'll catch everybody next week. Thanks, Eric.